Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, what's going on? Eric, we have another great guest lined up for today's show. Uh, we're going to be welcoming on James Costabile from iCapital. And uh, we're going to be talking about alternative investments. We're going to be talking about things like private equity. We're going to talk about private credit, get into a little bit of, uh, of real assets like real estate. And uh, we're excited to have James on the show. He's a wealth of knowledge, like all of our guests are. Uh, he is the managing director and head of alternative distribution on the iCapital private wealth solutions team. And you know, some of you may not be familiar with iCapital. I've noticed uh, many, many more golfers on the PGA Tour are wearing their logo. So I think it's a brand name you guys are going to recognize uh, quite quickly if you haven't uh, seen them already. But uh, James has a lot of responsibilities. He oversees a whole team of regional sales and national account professionals that work with registered investment advisors, financial advisors, financial intermediaries. So what he and his team do is they they deliver uh, really what's considered leading alternative investment education. And you'll see what I mean by that today. Uh, it's, they do uh, research viewpoints. Uh, they work on investment capabilities across hedge funds, private equity, private credit. So he's going to bring 25 years of experience to the table here today in the alternative space. And uh, I think you're going to you're enjoy hear, hearing what he has to say. He is a, uh, a chartered alternative investment analyst. So he's a really sharp guy, but he's going to break this down and make it really easy for us here. So James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you taking time under your schedule for our audience here. And uh, I guess just give us a little bit of background on iCapital and a little bit of your background in your career. Absolutely. And so, you know, iCapital is, is about to celebrate its uh, its 10-year anniversary. Uh, it was founded in 2013. Uh, right now, the organization is based in 13 offices across the globe. And we have more than 1,100 employees at this point, or actually nearly 1,100 employees. Total assets on the platform now are in excess of $150 billion. Um, and about roughly 30 billion of that is uh, from international clients. And we work with about 285, actually now close to 300 managers, you know, uh, issuers, insurance carriers that help us kind of bring great content from an investment perspective to our clients. And you know, we're really founded around the principles of how do we teach clients and advisors, you know, uh, about alternative investments. So, you know, obviously the learning aspect of it, as you mentioned, we also obviously are focused very much on making the practice of alternative investments easier for, uh, for clients uh, to consider, because typically if you were investing in a limited partnership, you had this large PPM, you had this sub doc, you had amendments to that. And it was very cumbersome because it was delivered, believe it or not, in hard copy. Uh, that was about an inch and a half thick. And so we wanted to make that experience much more digital. And then what happens after one purchases the investment, well, how do you actually manage right, the process? So how do you actually get to know the manager more intimately that you've allocated to through their monthly musings or quarterly you know, musings, performance? And then how do you ensure that you understand kind of what the return on that investment is, which when you own multiple products, it could be, it could be cumbersome. So Really, I think that you know the mantra for you know, for iCapital, and if you looked and came into our offices, it's powering the world's alternative investment marketplace. And you know we're obviously very proud of that. 
uh, and many uh, you know, of, of our clients um, have, uh, you know, have certainly bought into the story and our technology continues to get better and better, as well as our content and access to great managers on the platform. Excellent. So James, I know a lot of folks listening to the show, um, you know, have heard of private equity, but maybe have never had the chance to invest in it for a number of reasons. And I, I think some of it has been just the the barriers to entry in the past have been have been pretty difficult for you know a lot of folks to to get access to to assets like this. So can you just start off by telling us a little bit more about what private equity is, um, why it can make sense in certain portfolios, and just give us a broad overview? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, when we think about alts from an iCapital standpoint, I think that there are, you know, a couple of different buckets. Private equity is a bucket. Uh, we think of private credit as a second distinct bucket. We think of hedge funds as a third distinct bucket. And we think of real assets as, a, as that fourth distinct bucket. And each of these does something a little bit different in a portfolio. You know, private equity investments, you know, offer, I think, the potential for returns that, um, involve uh, you know the financing of non-public companies right and they help to partner with uh, great managers and then great entrepreneurs right that facilitate positive change to maximize business growth in these companies so I think it's really really important that when we think about private equity uh, I have found historically over the years that most of uh, the clients that I have spoken to so clients of yours Jim or prospects of yours Jim that they really identify and understand the private equity mantra in many cases better than the public equity story, because many of them have, have understand sweat equity. They understand putting capital at risk. They understand finding attractive businesses. They also understand hard decisions that need to be made in pursuit of growth or cost cutting. And really private equity brings to bear a lot of these best practices that many, again, clients that have earned their wealth through you know, their own business understand far more better right, than, than most. Uh, and, and while you didn't ask about it, but I think it's important, the private equity to me is really something that people would consider maybe in lieu of or in complement of a long only equity exposure, because over time, you know, you would expect private businesses and public businesses to rise and fall with similar economic cycles. Um, and, you know, we think that it should be a core staple of an allocation. And this is becoming much more important, especially as the number of, of public companies kind of remains flattish, right, over the last 10 years and private companies are continuing to grow in their influence and size. I think that's an interesting point about you know the, the number of public companies has remained fairly flat for quite some time now. Um, you know, but I, I think a lot of people they recognize the brands. When you start to mention private companies, some folks go, well, "Give me some examples." But I mean, there's there's millions of companies like this out there. So, how big is the private equity space in terms of number of companies uh, versus the, the the public sector? Yeah, you know. When you look at the numbers, um, and this is what I call PE-backed um, companies versus publicly traded companies. And so um, there are roughly at this point in time, approximately, and this is as of like the end of 2021, probably close to 23,000, maybe a little bit more than that, 23,000 PE-backed um, you know, companies. Uh, and versus, I would say a public equity number, and this is across the North America and Europe, of let's say a little over or close to let's say 14,000. So there are more uh, PE-backed companies, right, in, uh, for, in private equity sponsor hands in both North America and Europe than there is in the publicly traded marketplace today. And I think what's even more interesting is when you actually look specifically at um, U.S. companies uh, and you look at U.S. companies with more than 100 million of revenue, right, 
What you see in that particular segment is close to 90%. I think the number was approximately 87% of those companies are private, not public. And so if you as a client are investing in equity and you're bypassing the private equity market, your relative exposure right to the, to the equity market is actually small in the, in the grand scheme of things when you look at some of those numbers. Now, obviously, there are, you know, there are time periods that will, that will differ, uh, but it, it, it is quite notable and it continues to grow and has grown you know, uh, pretty handsomely since 2016. When you look at the number of PE-backed companies in both North America and Europe. And these companies are all different phases as well. So when, when someone's getting into private equity, I think sometimes they just think it's all one big giant category and uh, it's almost like one size fits all. Um, but that's not really the case. I mean, there's different there's different strategies in the private equity space. So, oh, absolutely, absolutely, very much so. Um, yeah. So, so what are what are some of the maybe the, I guess the big the main you know two or three different types of of themes of private equity funds that people will find out there? I would think that the major varieties, and obviously there are, there are, I'll give you extremes, but you have essentially what we would call leverage buyouts or LBOs. And then you have, which are you know companies that often um, have much more stable businesses. They may have more of a value tilt to how they actually, um, you know, um, how they're effectively running, uh, you know, or how they're, or how people perceive the relative risk in those companies. So these are typically, you know, more established businesses with, um, you know, a product, a concept, an idea that's well vetted, where maybe it could be managed more appropriately, and a private equity sponsor helps to uh, identify the the types of things that that company can do to drive more value for investors. And it could be a combination of both. Um, uh, I would say financial advice around how to you know uh, properly kind of uh, structure right the the leverage or the equity uh, or the ownership stake of the company to just the common blocking and tackling about business extension and operational improvements and business efficiencies. And then you kind of go to the extreme, what I would say is, which is venture capital, right? And those obviously are much more, um, what I would say, uh, the, you know, these are businesses that are, that are new, they're concept, um, you know, they have great ideas, but they need to be executed and be brought to market. And then you have, I would say in the middle, right, of that, you effectively have growth equity, which are, companies that have exited the venture capital space that are still uh, amazing growth opportunities, but they generally are higher growth businesses, you know, with, um, you know, kind of a, I, I think, you know, a, a great growth opportunity ahead of them. Uh, and, you know, they offer clients, I would say, if you have to think of it, um, maybe a more stable return relative to venture capital, which could be, has a tendency of being more erratic, uh, but maybe not something that you'd find, um, you know, but maybe the LBO space would be marginally lower than growth equity right, because of the stability of the business. And so just like in traditional public equity investment, there are always going to be skews to both value and growth, and then those that are in between those individual businesses. So when an investor is going into the private equity space, uh, you know, it may be difficult, especially if this is our first time investing in something like this, to, to pick and choose, well, what do I do? Do I go the venture capital route, where it's maybe a little bit more speculative, but maybe the rewards are better? Or do I go to a fund that's really uh, just buying out a company that's, that's much more mature completely or something that's kind of in between. How does an investor try to pick and choose or is there more of a, a fund of funds approach that's available? I think that there are a variety of options. You know, A, there are some uh, great, uh, what I would call multi-manager vehicles in the marketplace that actually will give you broad exposure, right? To private equity for registered, um, essentially accredited investors. And, and so there are a number of great managers in the, in, in the space that I capital partners with where you can fully fund your investment on day one, you could allocate to uh, an existing portfolio of seasoned investments 
and then uh, hold that as part of your allocation. And there's some ability to get some liquidity out of those portfolios on a periodic basis, generally speaking, quarterly, right? With, uh, with a certain percentage that is available to you as investing. And then you have, I would say the extreme, which is you know, where a lot of high net worth investors have been for, you know, for decades, what we call traditional private equity structures, where you commit to a specific manager and that manager uh, uh, essentially deploys that capital over three to five years. And then they hold those underlying businesses for between five and seven years, and they recycle the capital back to you as a limited partner. You know, the difference right on that is that, you know, you have to be essentially what's called a qualified purchaser. So that is, you know, as an individual, more than $5 million in investable assets. And so you have in the QP space, both single manager opportunities, and then you have both uh, what I would call multi-manager opportunities. And we offer both at iCapital. And I think what we do is we partner uh, closely with our research team, where they make a recommendation to us as to who they think some of the best single manager uh, options are in the market at any given point in time. And then they will also kind of create concentrated fund of funds, right, for clients that simply want something. They want exposure to PE, but they're not sure if they like leverage buyout versus growth equity, and they want someone to build that for them. And what we do is we build uh, what we call vintage series, which is a vintage is like a calendar year. And I think with private equity, it's important that as when you commit to the asset class, A, you don't do it all on one day, right? You want to own multiple vintages like you would in a fine wine or a series of wines. And you also want to own different managers within those vintages so that you have diversification across all of the areas that I just mentioned. You might want to have a certain ex exposure to LBO investing. You might want to have a certain exposure to growth investing. And that tilt is going to offer uh, a, diff a very different return profile uh, to someone. So the point is, uh, Jim, you have lots of options. I think what's important as you begin to evaluate these options is sitting down um, to understand, A, the liquidity profile that you have the return expectation that you have as part of the investment option, but also uh, you uh, need to uh, under, an understanding of, of a long-term nature and view that private equity um, has, because if you don't have it, um, it, it's generally a bad match, right? For the client, because uh, the liquidity of private businesses is a fraction of what it is for public markets, just given a variety of different reasons. And there may not be any liquidity for years at a time as that business is being improved and then sold and monetized for investors. So if we just think about just, I guess, some of the broad benefits of investing in private equity, um, you know, obviously there's some liquidity that people are going to have to give up in order to get access to this this type of an investment, but we're going to have a kind of a balanced conversation here, what some of the benefits are um, to private equity, and then what, what are some of the, the drawbacks or the key considerations that people have to be aware of before they commit to an asset category like this? So what, what would be some of the, the bullet points of, of some benefits of private equity? I think that the first, you know, uh, at least in my view, the reason that one considers private equity is is the potential for higher returns than what one can get in the public markets. And I think some managers, I think higher than others. I think what's what's interesting about private equity is that when you look at manager dispersion, so if our if our head of research were here and he were having a conversation with you, um, averages, right, are very difficult, right, to predict. But if you looked at um let's call it 20-year returns uh, for the global private equity benchmarks. Uh, and this is um, going back to, you know, let's call it approximately the end of 2022. And you looked at the total return that an investor would get if they were invested in the MSCI ACWI, uh, which is the, the ACWI is the, effectively, it's, it's the global market. The returns would have been around 7.5%, right, over that period of time. 
the private equity or global private equity benchmark over that 20 year period delivered about uh, uh, just under a 15% return. And so you do get paid for illiquidity, um, but when you begin to look at, and this is where our research team adds a ton of value, the dispersion between the best manager and the worst manager in private equity, there's a healthy gap between them, which means that you need to not just be in the asset class, but you need to be in the right manager or the right set of managers in order to make that happen. And having a research-centered view is obviously an important part of that. Um, what I would say is like, okay, so like this can't be all great, right? What are the potential risks? And I think that there are a number of risks, right? I think I, I mentioned, you know, I think the first is transparency. Um, traditional alternative investments do not offer the same level of transparency that you're going to find in public markets. Um, because registered investments require, you know, a frequent and full disclosure, whereas these businesses may not. So I think you have to get comfortable with transparency. Um, second is really liquidity. As I mentioned, most alternative investments, in particular, the drawdown structures that I mentioned, they have a lockup of capital, a period which you cannot redeem your investments. You know, these lockup periods vary by investment. They vary by structure. Alts should typically only be considered for a long-term hold which means that you know, if you're not prepared to be in the investment for upwards of 10 years or more, most of these investments are probably not suitable for that. And I think fees are a big component. Um, you know, and I kind of say this, private market and hedge fund fees are generally higher than traditional investments. So if you were to compare them to, let's say, a traditional mutual fund, you're going to find that those, that those numbers are, uh, again, also you know, much higher. And then you have leverage, which is a factor. And leverage is really, um, what you'll find is that leverage buyouts, they're not called leverage buyouts for nothing. They do apply leverage to the acquisition of these businesses, which means higher return, but it also potentially means greater downside. And, and I think the probably the last piece I think that has to be thought about is, you know, these are concentrated vehicles at times. And so you're going to have a few underlying funds if you're in a concentrated fund of funds or 20 to 30 individual holdings inside of a private equity investment. So these are things that you just have to get comfortable with, broadly speaking. What about the tax status? I mean, are, are all these uh, a K-1 or do some Great. of these funds offer 1099? Great question. Uh, I would say registered private equity offerings um, are typically 1099. Most drawdown private equity structures are typically K-1s. Uh, and so that also means that if, uh, and this is a, a I'm sure I should have brought this up, Jim, but if you are someone who's emphatically wanting to file their taxes by the middle of April, then K-1s are never going to be the right option for you because they will uh, hopefully give you estimates uh, prior to the end of the prior calendar year. But K-1s may not arrive until um, June, July, or August. And, and these are, were very dependent upon the underlying private equity funds to be able to do that. Whereas the 1099 products will uh, give you your 1099 ahead of your tax reporting and filing deadlines. So I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about returns, and you were giving us the kind of the broad category of, of private equity versus the global public markets. And those returns are certainly going to raise some eyebrows. Um, but a lot of times people associate if the return is higher for an asset category, that means there must be way more volatility. Is that necessarily the case with private equity, or is there is there some um, some additional returns without the additional volatility in some instances because you have that illiquidity nature with this that these things kind of balance each other out a little bit? 
I, I think what you're touching on is, I think, a topic that's been debated by the academics for a number of uh, a number of years, which is, is private equity less volatile, right, than a traditional equity investment? And the answer is, it's hard to tell because private equity marks its books once a quarter, right? Whereas, you know, your public market equities mark at the tick. And so I think it's very hard to make a volatility comparison to, you know, to PE versus public equity because of that. I think that the returns are relatively straightforward, right? You know, I think you've seen outperformance, but again, it's a function of manager selection, right? That drives that outperformance. Um, I think where you maybe can draw that conclusion might be closer to hedge funds, which you didn't necessarily ask about, where hedge funds have volatility profiles that are you know, considerably lower than that of a traditional 60-40 or 100% equity portfolio. And they add some volatility buffer right, to a portfolio because of the active trading strategies. But I'm not 100% sure that you could make that claim about private equity credibly. Um, but there are, you know, like again, um, benefits to it. I, I often find over time, um, you know, all of us probably have panicked at any given point in time about the market volatility. And sometimes illiquidity is your friend for these strategies. I think it helps clients stay focused on the long-term and not necessarily the short-term noise. And the illiquidity of private equity sometimes might be a good thing to those investors that may be um, unable to uh, you know, stay the long course. Uh, and we think private equity inherently has a long-term return orientation where when you think of it, and, I, and this is something I've always found to be fascinating about private equity, in, in a traditional PE structure, um, Jim, you are committing to pay a dollar amount to a manager over a five-year period of time. And so that money gets dollar cost averaged into the market over a period of time as the opportunities present themselves. Now, clients, you know, theoretically, as they're investing in equities, should dollar cost average into the market where the private equity structure has an inherent benefit that actually is linked to that. Also, what you want is you want to receive your capital back when you know, the return is at its most optimal, meaning when it's at its highest return uh, relative to the liquidity available in the market. And so general partners can only receive a fee or a profit incentive if they are liquidating an investment, right? Because they're collecting management fees uh, throughout the commitment period, typically. And then they have to liquidate investments to essentially receive what is called the carry, the carried interest. And so if they don't sell it and they don't realize a return, they're not going to receive their carried interest. So you have the GP that's incented to monetize that investment, return that capital back to clients over time. And so you have this perfect, I think, push-pull, which is academically dollar cost averaging. You have a hold period and you have an alignment of interest that aligns the limited partner to the general partner. And then you have a liquidation process that returns that capital to investors where every dollar of fees that the client has paid is returned. The principal that they uh, invested in that specific transaction is returned, uh, at which point the general partner is able to charge a, uh, it often gives, I would say, clients in that portfolio, which is called a preferred return. And so preferred returns on average are around an 8% level, which means clients receive their fees uh, and expenses. They receive their principal back. They receive a preferred return on their investment at that 8% level at which point then the general partner takes their cut. And so that to me is a very aligned story that takes long-term investing and then essentially operationalizes it for clients in those portfolios. So I think that's powerful. Very powerful. And then you mentioned liquidity a couple of times. Um, just to talk a little bit more about the differences in liquidity 
you know, I guess when you're just buying one fund directly or you're doing a fund of funds, how does the liquidity different? I know you mentioned that there's lockup periods. Um, you may not be able to get out at all, but after that, you might have some liquidity. Um, how does it compare to a fund of funds? Do they offer different liquidity? Is it, is it easier to get your money out? Is it faster or is it pretty much the same? So what I would, I'll, I'll basically compare it into three dynamics. So you have open-ended mutual funds, right? So they offer ease of use. They're very accessible to all investors. They have daily liquidity, low minimums, right? The transparency is extremely high, right, in that. Then you have what I would call the interim category, which is what we call closed-end registered funds. You know, these are more restrictive uh, structures, and they have some level of liquidity, right, for investors. Minimum investment levels in registered funds are typically around 25000 And what you find is that most of those closed-end registered funds require that you be an accredited investor which generally means a million dollar net worth that excludes your primary residence uh, or entities that have more than 5 million and above in total assets. You know, in this case, they're 1099, just like mutual funds, but the liquidity is generally available through what is called a tender process. So that means that uh, they will make, the general partner may make available up to five, or uh, I should say the manager may make available up to 5% of the, of the shares on a given quarter where you can pull out but you can imagine if everyone's running for the gate at the same time, then you're only getting back a, a portion of what you've invested. And then that liquidity has to be worked out over time. The extreme, right, which is I call unregistered private funds. You know, these are you know, more restrictive structures. They have higher barriers to entry because they require the investor to be qualified purchasers, which means 5 million in investable assets or 25 million as institutions. And the distributions really are a function of how long the general partner has decided to hold the investment and then until it becomes liquidated. As I mentioned, if it takes you five years to, to fully pay in, three to five years as a range, and each investment is held between, let's call it as a range, three and seven years, let's assume five, then your, your first dollars are not coming out to you in that portfolio until maybe year five, or maybe even perhaps even years four and five. So those distributions are a function of liquidity and the market as opposed to the tender process, which is relevant for registered funds. Excellent. And the last question on private equity before we move on to uh, private credit. Um, what about capital calls? Because I know you mentioned earlier that um, you know, there's a certain commitment that you have to make to the manager. And then when they need the money, they're basically saying, you better send it, right? Yeah. Um, tell us how capital calls work. And, and again, if, if there's situations where capital calls are not required for some of these funds. Uh, so uh, I would say with registered funds, you're, you're <clears throat> most, not all, but most are fully funded. You commit $25,000, you are fully paying it in on day of commitment. <clears throat> you typically have uh, monthly closes for most of those, I, I, would, I would call it offerings. Uh, with respect to the unregistered private funds, as I mentioned earlier, those are really going to be, um, you know, as, as they identify opportunities. Uh, so you might get an initial capital call <clears throat> of a couple of percentage points, and then as the years pass and the, that deal flow begins to season, you're going to get chunks uh, or capital calls for 5 and 10% of the investment. What you often see, as I mentioned earlier, maybe before you're fully paid in to these, these, these investments, especially in an unregistered private equity structure or private fund structure, you're actually already starting to get back uh, liquidations from investments that have been sold by the general partner. So what you, what you may often find is that if you make a commitment, let's say of 100000 Right, which is the typical feeder fund related investment for us, 
you might actually, uh, you know, uh, maybe only pay 70 or 80 cents on the dollar out of your pocket to fund that investment because of the cycling or recycling of capital. Now, those numbers will vary by fund. They will vary by strategy. Uh, they'll vary by vintage. Um, you know, obviously averages often change just given market conditions and circumstances. Excellent. So let's shift gears a little bit because, uh, you know, we were talking about private equity, pretty much the, the whole podcast episode till now, but um, private credit, you know, if, if private equity is an alternative to public equity, you know, walk us through how uh, how private credit works. And is that an alternative to other fixed income assets? Yeah, I, I listen, private credit investments offer the potential, at least in my mind, for for income. And, you know, they typically involve fixed income in instruments that are what we would say are, are privately negotiated, right? So these are agreements, right, between the lender and, and the borrower as to the individual terms. And, you know, when you have a 0% interest rate type of policy, you as the lender maybe have less control than you would normally like in that individual situation. You know, as the world has gotten harder, uh, the lenders are more in the driver's seat and the borrower essentially has to be extremely, uh, you know, A, credit worthy. And, you know, there is certainly, uh, in addition to being objective about the ability of that firm to handle the leverage that they're taking on, there's a whole lot of subjective viewpoints that managers bring to bear about the cyclicality of the businesses that they're lending to, the quality of the management team that they're lending to at these individual businesses, which firms in particular they want to partner with and which ones that they don't. But you know, in our view, private equity is really equity-like. Uh, private credit, um, you know, can uh, be in lieu of traditional uh, fixed income, but it doesn't mean that you're going to compare a private credit investment to a high-quality treasury. That's not at all what it's meant to be. Private credit is, I would say, more high-yield in nature. Um, the assets typically have a tendency of being floating rate versus fixed rate. So as, as interest rates rise, the payments that you receive from these companies rises as well. But that also, to some extent, puts some tension right on the underlying businesses that you are you have lent the money to. So they, you know, it's a little harder to essentially pay back those loans. So they have to have a healthy operating business. Uh, and also, uh, it means that we have to be a lot more selective, right, uh, in a higher rate environment of who we lend money to, just given the fact that we're in the game to receive our money back and a high return. Uh, and you know, we we don't necessarily want to be in a process if we can avoid it of default, uh, because that's really not the primary intent of private credit, uh, although there may be managers in the private equity space that might be willing to walk into the, I would call it the distressed category of investing, which is, you know, uh, which is where they're willing to take on some of that potential risk of essentially owning the keys, so to speak, of the businesses that they've lent money to. Uh, but I would say on average, most of the managers that have emerged more recently in private credit, uh, it's about the income and the yield, and they try to, you know, to minimize the defaults uh, through just great credit analysis and understanding the companies that they lend the money to. So odds are somebody's listening to this and they're, and they're thinking to themselves, well, the company that's borrowing the money, why are they going into the private market and getting into a more of a direct lending situation than just doing a more of a traditional bond offering? So like, why, why would a company you know, want to do something like this for themselves? They're trying to grow their business, but why are they going this route versus going more of the uh, the traditional bond offering route? You know, I guess I, what I would say is that if you look at private debt, I mean, it's grown, it's grown a lot, right? Since, you know, I would say in earnest, it probably started, you know, growing in probably 2014, 2015. Uh, and I think the, the answer is, is that many of these companies I said that they're lending to are, are typically smaller companies. They're in that middle market or even sub, you know, uh, so let's call it 
And again, I don't like making general statements only because, you know, general statements can be kind of misconstrued, but I would say, let's assume that these companies are, let's, let's say 150 million of EBITDA earnings before interest taxes, depreciation or less. Those companies may be less attractive to a big bank, right? Uh, and, and they may not get the attention, right? Of the individuals in those, at those banks to lend back capital, or they may be companies that might be in growth stages where that bank doesn't really understand you know, kind of how to properly value the business relative to the collateral on hand. The entire market of private lending has really grown dramatically to support um, you know, these businesses. And what you often find for many of what we call the private lenders, they're structured in what we call BDCs, business development corporations, public or private. And what these BDC managers often do is they partner with high quality private equity shops that understand how to operate these businesses and they lend money to those businesses that are being effectively overseen by these private equity shops. So it really allows the lender to know that they have a great management team at the company level and they have great oversight at the private equity level. And, and, and it gives them greater confidence that they may be able to receive you know, the full return of their capital and their contractual return. And so I think it's, Short answer is the banks may not necessarily care as much about it. And so this entire um, business has grown up around facilitating and lubricating the private equity markets and it continues to grow. And it's something that obviously we've been a, a major beneficiary of here, just having, um, you know, having raised money for clients and as well as partnering with some very great managers in the space. So, so the end user, the investor in a, in a private credit strategy, is it primarily because they, they want that uh, consistent cash flow stream, maybe for for their retirement or for some other objective. Um, and they're saying, well, yeah, it's a floating rate note. The interest rate itself might bounce around a bit, but maybe the principle is a little bit more stable. Um, or is that the wrong way to think about this? I, listen, I, I think you're. I think you have durable yield, but you know, obviously, these businesses. You know, you're. I think the latest numbers that I saw on some of the yields that you were getting on some of these publicly traded BDCs was probably between ten and I think I saw ten to fourteen percent as a general range. You know, so these are obviously considerable um, yields if you were to compare them to a treasury or even for that matter, high yield. I mean, there is embedded risk in these businesses. It's not without risk. You just, as I said before, you have competent management teams and you have oversight with private equity. I, I think that people shouldn't look at these in, in lieu of like high quality treasuries. They shouldn't. So this is to me, if you're going to be in fixed income, a portion of that fixed income can certainly be in private credit. And it's it should be in private credit because the excess yields that you're getting there maybe are probably appropriate for the risk that you're taking, but uh, you're somehow immunizing your cash flow needs through high quality assets and short-term assets, right? To help uh, you know, manage the trade-off decision of private equity, or for that matter, private credit in this situation. So these are just pieces of the portfolio, but it's not to replace an entire segment of the portfolio. Absolutely. That a fair statement? That's right. And like alts from an allocation perspective, you know, we have your endowments and foundations that might have 40, 50, 60% of their assets in alts. Um, you know, we think that the number in the in, in what I would call the individual investor land is is probably twenty uh, percent, you know, plus or minus, right? In in these areas, and it's really the decision is fully a function of liquidity. If liquidity is the sole point of calibration, then you know, alts needs to be considered differently, and you need to maybe reconsider what types of strategies you buy or incorporate. So, where do you see real estate fitting in to the That's, portfolio overall? You know, it's it's just like just like private equity. You have different strategies. Real estate, you have different strategies. Like, you know, how do you 
how do you compare a core or core plus asset, right? Which generally speaking is a building that is fully uh, leaded that has, you know, high quality tenants in class A office locations or uh, to, you know, maybe something that is um, opportunistic in nature that, that has no tenants that needs a whole lot of work and needs to be repositioned on the market. You know, we think that maybe the core core plus part of the market might be much more bond-like and diversifying in the portfolio. Whereas if you have inflation, um, you know, it, you're able to pass through the cost of inflation right through property appreciation or rent escalators. Whereas in a case of opportunistic real estate, it may not be the case, right? In that you, you really don't have any cash flow that you're working off of. You're carrying greater debt on the asset. But if you're, you know, if you were to talk to our research team today, they would be you know, telling you that you should be thinking about opportunistic real estate where you're deploying that money over the next three to four years uh, and the opportunities to buy assets at low prices, given that the cost of debt has gone up, is more attractive now than it's ever been. But you know, there hasn't been a lot of trading in the marketplace because you always have this disconnect between buyers and sellers. You know, sellers think their assets are worth more, buyers want to pay less. And so there's always this negotiation point. And so we think of opportunistic real estate as probably being more equity replacement, whereas maybe we think of core and core plus as being more fixed income oriented. But uh, I, we think of real estate as being a diversifier, clearly relative to stocks or bonds, because it's neither stocks nor bonds, then it does have some durable yield in it if you actually have the right assets. And so, you know, we uh, work with clients who want both. And, you know, we've obviously sourced managers that are very competent in both of those disciplines. So I know it's not really the right comparison to look at, you know, private equity, private credit versus real estate. They're all, they're all very different. But in terms of the commitment an investor has to make and the liquidity challenges, um, how similar or dissimilar would, would a, a real estate uh, like an investment in a REIT be versus a private equity fund? I would say the the REIT, my, my definition of REITs are probably much more similar to closed end registered funds, where you might have a you know minimum in some cases as low as 2,500. You may not even have to be an accredited investor. And often the, these funds do not require you to be, but you have interim liquidity, you know, let's call it 5% or so on a quarterly basis that's returned, uh, that investor or that the general partner is able to return to investors. And then your opportunistic funds are generally um, you know, uh, unregistered private funds because you're paying capital in over time and you're liquidating as those individual assets are sold. And so I, I would say the, the non-traded REIT market is, is kind of a similar to the closed-end registered fund market more broadly in terms of liquidity, uh, in terms of the uh, audience that might actually be uh, you know, purchasing that investment, you know, 1099s are the norm in that space. Um, you know, there is some tax efficiency potentially that can come from some of these strategies if you actually understand the inner workings of real estate and depreciation. And whereas in the case of opportunistic, it, it's probably, um, you know, again, in that unregistered space. Additionally, I think an area that, you know, we continue to kind of look at uh, that has, again, these durable yield type of characteristics is certainly infrastructure, which is an area that I think our real estate uh, or I should say our research team is excited about, but, you know, the ability to buy, you know, uh, power facilities and things like that, that actually have uh, their essential services where they have the ability to pass pricing on to end uh, consumers, uh, but they generally do so on a contractual basis with some of the large utilities. I think there are some very interesting you know, toll roads you know, situations that happen where if anyone has actually taken 
you know, a toll road in some city, you know, the, it's probably not a big surprise that the roads are a little nicer, uh, but you're paying, right, to get to from point A to point B. Um, and so infrastructure-oriented investments and funds, you know, can uh, essentially be part of that. So we think, you know, when you think about alts, I think that the stools, I mentioned the four legs of the stool, uh, we think that private equity, we think of private credit, we think of real assets more broadly as being three essential legs with hedge funds, again, being the fourth. That's what I want to wrap up with is a little discussion on hedge funds, because I think uh, you know a lot of folks, it depends on what's going on in the market. They hear hedge funds are uh, attractive, then they hear stay away from them. So I, I think a lot of folks just don't know what hedge funds really are and, and how they work. I know there's a bunch of different varieties here, but I guess from a 30,000 foot view, uh, talk us to us a little bit about how hedge funds are, are set up, what they're supposed to be doing and, and how they fit into a portfolio or not. Yeah, so I, I, we think that hedge funds, you know, should be a consideration in any portfolio. And when you really boil it down, you know, I think I think there are hedge funds probably fall into three primary buckets, right? If you were to speak to you know the team, you know, I, I would say there's a subset of, of hedge funds that are likely to be stabilizers in a portfolio, where they're going to kind of you know help mitigate volatility. You have a set of hedge funds that we would call return enhancers in a portfolio where uh, you're basically seeking greater returns to what you might expect in either debt or equity. And then you have a certain uh, set of investments that we would call diversifiers. So like those are the three buckets. I would say uh, diversifiers are meant to act very differently than stocks and bonds. And some of the strategies that uh, you might have heard of that fit into that diversifying bucket might be uh, things like global macro or managed futures, where the managers are truly investing in global markets. They're investing using both uh, discretionary and systematic uh, trading strategies to add value uh, for investors. The I would call it the stabilizers largely are multi-strategy firms. Um, you know that uh, what they try to do is they try to invest across equity, fixed income, commodities. Some will apply leverage, some will not, and they try to offer a return stream that is much more akin to what you might expect of a balanced portfolio from a volatility perspective, but equity-like returns. And again, going back to my point before, it's manager selection is critical in hedge funds because the average and the extremes often do not match. And then you have these, again, return enhancers where you have very, very high quality you know, equity long short managers that are both long and short great companies. And so you're long good companies, short bad companies, and you're trying to create uh, a risk return profile that might be lower than a long only equity index uh, or a long only active equity manager. Uh, but you know the the brains of the organization is really around stock picking, and you could pick great stocks through systematic means, which is quantitative big computing, or you can pick it through just plain vanilla fundamental themes. And you know I think and then also in that return uh, enhancement bucket, you have a, a set of great managers, and so there are managers that are graded credit. There are managers uh, that will try to uh, invest across a company's capital structure, right, to find the right opportunities. So I think anyone that's turning off hedge funds just because you know, they've heard things, I think isn't really doing themselves any justice. And I'd say the same of an advisor in that space. I think the question that one needs to ask is, do I want return enhancement? Do I want stabilization? Uh, do I want diversification? And then what is the relative liquidity that I'm willing to essentially assume, or illiquidity, I should say, that I'm willing to assume for that? Uh, because hedge funds, while uh, 
you know, they offer some interim liquidity where, as I mentioned before, certain private equity structures may not. And I think, uh, I think that's a function of the markets in which they invest, which are largely the capital markets and the more liquid capital markets. Uh, but the risk in hedge funds is the same risk, as I mentioned before, in private equity, leverage, transparency, uh, and all of those natures. But I, I don't think that anybody should be turning them off, right? Because uh, I think that's doing a disservice. Yeah. And I like what you said about, it's like, what are you really trying to do with this, this category? Are you trying to enhance your return? Are you trying to you know maybe shrink your volatility a bit? I, I think a lot of times people just throw money at something and go, well, this has to be like the unicorn. It works no matter what. It's <laughs> just not the way any of this stuff works. That's, uh, absolutely. Yeah. You have to have a, a purpose for each ingredient in the portfolio. So James, I think we're we're about out of time here, but this was this was fantastic. I mean, this was probably um, we probably could have spent one episode on each of these topics, and uh, we appreciate you coming on here and giving us this this nice high level overview. If somebody wants to learn more about the alternative investment space, um, are there any resources on, like like on the iCapital website that uh, the general public can go to 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 learn more? Absolutely. There's you know so for our financial advisors, um, you know obviously we have a full portal right for them to pick and choose from. For our clients, we have insights and content that is available on the public domain. You know, we have a 60-40 newsletter that we write uh, every month where we try to kind of profile things that we think are important for clients to think about. Uh, and you know, we generally will talk about private equity, private credit, hedge funds, real assets as part of that. So you know, please give the iCapital website or 60-40 newsletter uh, a try, right? Because I think you know we're obviously pretty excited about it. And I, I think you know, hopefully the, the big takeaway for us is that alts, to me, alts are not an option for clients uh, to consider just given the market dynamics. And if clients are seeking you know, greater uh, returns, I think private equity is a, typically a destination for that. If it's really around kind of the alternative source of income, it's certainly private credit. And then diversification, it gets a bad rap, but hedge funds aren't a bad place to start uh, given how they uh, can add value, but it's not just buying hedge funds, it's buying the right one for the right purpose. And then real assets, you know, could provide great, you know, income and inflation protection. And, you know, we obviously uh, spend a whole lot of time doing primary diligence and all the investments that we have on our platform. And we make all of that available to, uh, to individuals that want to read about our viewpoints. And I think that is a differentiator uh, of iCapital. We don't outsource our diligence. We make it available to those that want to read it. Every investment that we recommend has diligence on it. Uh, and then we can also, again, sit and work through the portfolio construction, which obviously is a, is a passion of ours. And we think we have a great platform that is easy to use for those that want to make the decision to allocate. Excellent. James, we appreciate you being on here. And uh, before I turn it back over to Eric, uh, I do just want to mention a couple of quick things that you know a lot of these strategies we talked about today are for higher net worth, higher income investors. And you've heard the term today, qualified purchaser. Uh, you heard accredited investor. And you have to be one of those for most of the strategies we talked about here today. So um, at the end, we have our normal compliance disclosures. Uh, stay tuned till the very, very end, because I'm going to read off um, the definitions of what an accredited investor is, what a qualified purchaser is. And that way, as you're starting to learn more about these different investment strategies, uh, you'll know if, if you're already in that wheelhouse of having these things be available to you or if um, if you're on your way to being there. So Eric, let me turn it back over to you. Outstanding. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been fantastic. James, thank you for all the great information. Thank you for being a wonderful guest. Of course, Jim, thank you for hosting the show and always bringing incredible guests to the show. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. 
This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Compliance number 2023-155-125 expires May 2025. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. In this episode, we discuss categories of investments with requirements that may vary. Many of these products are only available to accredited investors and or qualified purchasers. An accredited investor is generally defined as a person with either a net worth greater than $1 million, excluding the value of one's primary residence, or income of $200,000 in the last two years individually, or $300,000 together with a spouse and a reasonable expectation of earning the same in the current year, or a FINRA Series 7, 82, and 65 license holder. An accredited investor that is an entity not formed for the purpose of the investment where any of the following is true. Assets over $5 million generally. The entity is made up of equity owners who are accredited investors. Family offices with at least $5 million in assets under management and their family clients, as each term is defined under the Investment Advisors Act. Native American tribes, government bodies, LLCs, and rural investment companies. For a complete list of categories, please visit the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission website. A qualified purchaser is generally defined as any of the following. A person with not less than $5 million in investments. A trust with not less than $5 million in investments and not formed for the purpose of the investment. A company, such as a corporation or partnership, owned by close family members with not less than $5 million in investments and not formed for the purpose of the investment. A company, all of the securities of which are beneficially owned by a qualified purchaser, or any company that does not fall into the previously mentioned categories with not less than $25 million in investments. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 
0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103.